Hello and welcome back to the Space Albi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin, talking as always with my good friend and co-founder Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how's Poland? Poland, uh, Poland's great. I was up in um, my wife's region, Polasha, last last week for All Saints and All Souls Day. So just visiting the you know the family members in the cemetery. So it was great. But back in Krakow now. You, what what you told me about we'll talk about this maybe in another podcast but what you told me about your experience of visiting all the all the the graveyards and everything is a great example i think of how we still believe as americans that there are certain kind of ingrained cultural like sort of c- culturally catholic practices in certain cultures like poland and, and and elsewhere in european society where uh americans really have a lot to learn so i i think it's really cool that you had that experience where you just got to kind of go be go be a good cultural Catholic for, for a week or a few days. Yeah. Well, it's like a, the whole, whole, you know, country, even though it's like a custom participates in this like pilgrimage to, to the, the gravesite of their, you know, beloved. And so it's uh, you almost feel like you're, you're going to equivalent of like a football or baseball game. It's just, you even have, you know, the police are out guiding traffic and helping people cross. So it's, it's quite inspiring. Wow, that's amazing. Well, today we're going to talk about totalitarianism, uh, something that Poland knows something about. And uh, we're joined by a guest, uh, Flag Taylor, who teaches political theory and is associate professor of political science at Skidmore College. Flag, how are you? I'm doing very, very well. I'm happy to happy to join the podcast. It seems like a great, great project. So glad to be part of it. Well, thanks, Flag. We are we're fans of your work, and we have a few mutual friends, and so it's really nice to be able to connect to you personally today and talk about some of your interests and some of ours. And you're kind of a specialist on totalitarianism in um, Central and Eastern Europe and Cold War stuff. And so, but you're also a great, like me and Bobby, great a great film enthusiast, and you write about film and media sometimes too. And uh, so, we would love to kick off our discussion of totalitarianism today spending some time talking about one of the great movies of this century, and that is Florian Hinkle von Donersmark's 2006 movie, The Lives of Others. Um, you, I believe, have um, edited a book collect- a collection of essays on on that great movie. So just tell us what, just right off the bat, we'll get into some of the depth of it, but just right off the bat, what's the, what is the significance of this great movie, The Lives of Others? Well, I think it started... Um... I mean, when when that movie came out, I, I would have said there are probably not a not a ton of great movies about totalitarianism in general or communism in particular. Um, but but that one was so good, and it won the uh, Academy Award for Best Foreign Film in two thousand seven, and you know universally acknowledged almost to be a, a moving a moving movie by anyone who saw it. I think it was. Uh, William, F., I think it was in a Jay Nordlinger column for National Review. He, I think he saw it with William F. Buckley, and who supposedly said, "Upon exiting the theater, that was the best movie movie I've ever seen." Um, so widely embraced and and loved by lots of people, I would say across the political spectrum, not just conservatives. Um, and I just found it to be a wonderful movie. And and a movie that you could learn from, right? Both an entertaining movie in terms of plot and character, and you know your attention never never flags a bit. So you know, just as a as a film experience, very wonderful and moving. But then, 
as a as something that could give you a real sense of what it might have been like to live in a totalitarian regime, something that you could really learn from, right? I found it to be uh, extraordinary. And so then, you know, turned to this um, book project that that you alluded to, um, putting together some some essays by different scholars from a range of disciplines and um, lucky enough to have a friend um, who was a journalist working in Berlin that was able to interview Joachim Gauck, who was the first administrator of the of the Stasi archives after the wall fell and then um, rose to be president of Germany shortly after that book came out. So that was a extraordinary bit of luck uh, for us to get an interview with him. So um, again, just a movie that is good as a movie, but but one that I, I think is a sort of inexhaustible source of thinking and learning about the phenomenon of totalitarianism. Yeah, it's a remarkable it's a remarkable thing when you think about it. The movie is set in the mid the mid 1980s. And, you know, I so I was I was born in 1979. And I remember when the Berlin Wall fell, I was 10 years old. Um, but you know, I, most of my most of my growing up was kind of in the wake of the Cold War ending, and and as an American, you know, not not experiencing um, a lot of the things that Europeans would have done at that time. But watching this movie that came out in two thousand and six, you realize. In 1983, 1984, it was still not at all inevitable what was going to happen. Um, you know, my my father taught geography uh, at a at a university, and I remember him telling me in the late 70s, he said it was just absolutely taken for granted among his colleagues in the social sciences, in 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 all the academic departments in the university, that communism was here to stay. Period. That there was no, there wasn't any. You know, you know, Reagan could say, oh, we're going to defeat these guys," but nobody, nobody really thought that was true. And the interesting thing to me about the lives of others is just how near the end is. And yet they're still so deep in the game of like the whole kind of what is truth thing and the whole kind of like trying to manipulate the message and the, manipulate a whole people, you know. So maybe I'll just, you know, that's just kind of an open ended comment, but maybe I just throw it back to you um, to, to give us a sense in that movie of like, you know, how real that was, like, for the people, like, you know, we have this character in the film, Gerd Wiesler, who's the Stasi agent, who's like the best of the best, you know, and yet he, it begins to kind of like, his brain ends up getting rattled, right? Because even he sort of starts to unravel with the, with the idea that like, maybe, you know, maybe there's something really true that isn't just what we, you know, what we kind of concoct, right? So anyway, open-ended, I'll just throw it back to you for further comments about the great film. Well, I I, th I would add add to your um, initial comment ab about the idea that you know in the mid '80s it was still not not obvious to anyone that this thing was going to uh, end anytime soon. That is that is you know brought home to me in my uh, you know academic life. I mean, I, if if you think about the Sovietologists, the so-called Sovietologists, the people who are supposedly experts. In Soviet communism, very few of them thought that the the regime would end um, when it did, with the partial exception of maybe Robert Conquest is the is the name sometimes people um, mention as as someone who had a sense that things were not not going that well. Um, but then the other thing, uh, other detail I think is interesting. So I've done a lot of research on Czechoslovakia in um, in particular. And I've interviewed a lot of former dissidents. 
and tried to pick at their brain, you know, why did you resist? What were your motivations? Did you think there would be concrete consequences for the for the regime if you did acts, right? What what was your thinking as you as you thought about, you know, trying to engage in behavior that would ha- you know, could have some pretty significant grave consequences for you. Um and with the exception of one person, none of them uh none of them s- said that they expected to see the end of the regime in their lifetime. So even even among the dissidents, right, the people who who thought the regime should disappear, <laughs> very few of them thought that there would be any kind of concrete effect in in their own lifetimes. And these are, you know, these are people who in some cases were in their late 30s, early early 40s, right? So um it it end, ended much sooner than <laughs> than they would have even ever uh, ever imagined, and then the other detail, right? I mean, it, it, in the case of uh, East Germany, and this is alluded to in the film, uh, I I think it it ends you know partly as a kind of weird circumstance, accident, bungling, right? The story of the the border guard who who calls his boss in the state and. He, he he thinks the guy said open the gate, but he didn't say open the gate. So there's all sorts of bizarre historical details, right? That yeah, you know, it just it's, you just never know what's gonna what's gonna lead to to what. And I think the film alludes to that um, kind of fragility, surprise. Um, there's that wonderful scene in the end where the I think Wiesler, who who was this this uh, Stasi officer, as you mentioned, is now working in a mailroom you know, steaming envelopes so they can, they can uh, monitor what's being, what's being written through people's correspondence. And uh, this guy says, Oh, the wall's coming down and they just get up, they, they take off their, their headphones or whatever they're doing. And they just, they just walk out. It's like, yeah. Oh, it's all over. Let's it's go. over. We don't have to pretend anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bobby, do you want to jump in? Well, no, you mentioned Andrew, you, we don't have to pretend anymore, but I'm thinking about uh Cheswolf Miwosh's, uh, great book, The Captive Mind, and uh, it, like the he he has a section in there about like literally you know everybody is pretty much pretending. Uh, they they know in some ways the truth and the situation, but yet everybody has to talk a certain talk and act a certain way. Um, I'm trying to recall actually the example, the word he has for that, but um, Catmon, Catmon. The, yeah, the Ketman, and, and there's various types, right? Doesn't he like list them yep, all? Yep. Out? Um, could you maybe even, uh, I mean, uh, with with Miwosh in mind, maybe for some people who are a little bit unfamiliar with the Ketman um, uh, term, maybe explain. Yeah. yeah so he the, in this this is the uh, the third chapter of his great book. He he just has this um, concept that he says he discovered in a book. Um, by a French 19th century guy named Gobineau who had traveled to Persia and he was introduced to it um, to uh, people in Persia who wanted to present themselves as Orthodox Muslims, but, you know, for, for personal reasons might not have been, uh, you know, particularly more Orthodox and, but didn't want to advertise that fact. And so uh, Miwos uses this to explain um, how poles in the atmosphere of um, post-war communism, uh, you know, this very harsh Stalinist regime, you know, how did they, how did them, how did they exist every day? And he says, well, they solved it by using Ketman, in other words, by becoming actors. So they would send out a kind of public self into the public world and presented themselves as 
perfectly orthodox communists. He goes into these these um, different species of this genus, right? So you, one I think is um, want to say revolutionary Ketman, where you would um, acknowledge that you know Russia is is this wonderful place that gave birth to the Bolshevik Revolution. So you'd say nice things about um, the Bolsheviks and and Lenin. Um, and it's again this idea that that you would behave a certain way in public, but when you were treated into your own, you know, private life, you you might um you might be willing to be a bit more open, right? Depending upon who you were with and how much you trusted them. Um Miwosh himself and other thinkers after him, right, have have suggested though that this is a more difficult thing to pull off than it might seem, that um at a certain level, right, you you would be more and more comfortable with this public self. And maybe that public self would start to kind of eat away at this inner core that you're trying to preserve. And so it's not, it's not so easy to preserve this division between public person and um, private, you know, dissident. Uh, and, and so although he presents this as a kind of solution, I think he suggests this is not necessarily something that, um, solve things at a kind of fundamental level for for people and i mean andrew you already suggested the the wiesler character in the lives of others sort of suggests in a way that um how that that uh problem is is not something that can be overcome yeah and you know something else that occurred to me as you're talking and i've thought about this before but it's just coming back to me that of course in a sense, The Lives of Others is a movie about acting too, right? I mean, it yeah. is a movie about a playwright and an actress and and they're they're being observed by this agent, right? So yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to say say something about that. I I you know, I love the scene when um when Wiesler confronts Krista Maria in the bar and he says to her, I'm your public, which is such a strange thing for him to say because he she you know she just means she just thinks he means oh well he's seen one of my plays or something because she's an actress on the stage and and her her partner her boyfriend or whatever Georg Dreiman is a playwright but of course he means it that he's watching her through the official kind of Stasi uh, apparatus um, so I don't know if there if there's a question in that but um, there there's more I think to be said about just how Florian Hinkle von Donersmark really conveys that very thing that you're talking about, this sort of like this identity that is sort of acting and the the anxiety that that produces in people. Yeah, I think I would say, right, that the I mean, he's he's playing on the purpose of of art and the the dramatic arts in particular, right, it would be to get people to, you know, people go to a play to uh, observe uh a piece of art that can tell tell them something interesting and true about the world. And so art puts a kind of distance between um, what you think, how you think the world works, right? And the way the world might actually work. And it does that by, again, putting this distance between you and whatever's on the page or whatever's on the stage. Um, but that's a different kind of acting that's not what the purpose of the acting that we were just talking about with Ketman is for, right? That's the opposite. And so I think he's trying to play with the, that, that contrast a little bit. I don't know. Fascinating. I, yeah. I, um, you talked about the film too, as like just in itself, a great, a great movie. I mean, a great drama. I've never experienced catharsis 
like I, I, I watched the film by myself. I, I got it at the local library and I, I was uh, at home from college. And I just, I, when I was watching, I, at a certain point, I just started crying like a baby. I had, I, I have experienced catharsis at a certain, I won't give away the movie, but there's a certain point. I just, I, I just started uncontrollably crying because like, like um, the, um, with the, the Stasi guy, I was so involved in their drama and felt like there was no way out that I, I it's it, in some ways it's, it's such a great example of the tragedy of that, of that situation they were in, but the true love that they had for each other as well. Cause you, you know, that she, despite everything that's happening, she loves him like completely and, and same, the same with him. Right. Yeah. I um yeah. well and it's interesting too how they're um he you know he wants to keep from her you know we can give away a little bit i suppose people should have seen this movie by now but if you haven't go see it we're not we're not spoiling it my 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 perspective in in my writing and in my interactions with people in the world is i really don't care about spoilers i think if a movie is worth watching it's worth watching whether you know what happens or not but anyway um this isn't giving away too much to say yeah so i mean the at the heart of the movie there's this playwright georg dryman and then his partner krista maria zeeland who's a who's an actress and yeah they they really love each other to the point where he wants to keep from her he wants to keep secret from her the kind of the 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 illegal activity that he and his like intellectual friends are engaging in and then by accident she discovers what they're doing and then she's put in a really tight spot and essentially like they can the 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 state can use the fact that she just the fact that she has this knowledge in her brain is enough that she can kind of she she sort of betrays them right and it seems to me like that that's part of the just the the awfulness of totalitarianism is this the the ability to kind of you know leverage this information on you know against people despite their love for each other it seems just incredibly inhumane to me and that really comes across in the film i don't know if you have thoughts about that flag yeah i think that's right i the, i guess the one the other thing i would add that's sort of going back to the previous question about um about Ketman and and acting and this this idea that you could send out a public self and conform and um, the the other interesting thing I would say about the film is that that is not really um, what the two primary characters in the film do. So I, I think where Wiesler in particular is presented as a pretty sincere socialist, right? He 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 thinks that this is this is a regime that is just and. This project is a project that is worth um, undertaking. I mean, I think he you, you see even at the beginning of the movie, he, maybe he has certain doubts, but, um, you know, he's not he's not a cynic. Right. He's he's kind of in it for for real. And on the other hand, Dryman, this the playwright that, that, that you mentioned, he's someone who has kind of made his peace with the regime in a way. Right. He, we know that he's an award winning playwright he's been given gifts by uh Honecker's wife uh and so he's kind of tolerated as a as a playwright and so maybe he's kind of made this deal in his own conscience like well this regime isn't great on the other hand right there's room for decent people like me to uh to make a living as a dramatist and 
I can, you know, I can affect change from within with my art. And so he's not, I would say he's not a cynic either. He, he, I think he really thinks that he's, you know, acting decently. And it's only when he really is brought face to face with the ugliness of the regime in two concrete ways. One, the death of his friend Yerska, the, the other director that commits suicide. And two, right, Wiesler's the one who forces him to go down to the um, first floor of his flat when uh, Minister Hemp, who is the Minister of Culture, right, it turns out he's basically raping his his girlfriend and he doesn't know it and Wiesler wants him to see it, right? He's, he's like, this guy this guy thinks he's, um, you know, living in a somewhat decent regime, but I'm going to show him how ugly things are. And so, um, you know, both, both of them in, in a way need to be smacked in the face with the truth about what's, what's happening. Um, and by, I guess I would just let, fi finally, I'll end my little monologue. The Hemp, uh, the minister of culture, and then um, Grubitz, who is the other Stasi colonel, I think he's Wiesler's immediate superior. Both Hemp and Grubitz are cynics. I think they're actors. They they have no illusions about, you know, the possibility of revolutionary socialism. They're they're in it to preserve their power and not much else. Yeah. Uh let's um I, I wonder when I think about that hemp character, there there's that really startling scene at the end where you know, Dryman is now one of the great kind of intellectuals of the new Europe, in a sense, like after the wall goes down, he's still, you know, he's kind of risen to the top, this former East German who's now right, still writing plays and writing about kind of the new reality or whatever. And he, he puts on a play, I believe, or he's at a play or something like that at the very end. And this minister is there and they have this conversation. And the thing that struck me about that is just thinking that this, this guy, this minister who was this total cynic, um, but who kind of, you know, did every awful thing to get to the top of this, this horrible regime is still, you know, still influential, still, you know, he's still around, right? Um, which reminds me, reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you know the work of, of the German novelist Heinrich Böll, but some of his work touches on that, like, you know, all these like former Nazis, like, as long as you're just like, not the top first like the as long as you're not like in the first or second tier if you're like in the third or the fourth tier you still get to be the mayor of cologne or the you know whatever you still get to kind of be around right like you don't you don't really pay the price and i saw that with him i don't know just in your in your kind of work flag on totalitarianism is this is this the case like does this really happen in these you know in in some of these places where you know like former kind of participants in the in the system are you know still on top when the system goes down um, I guess I wouldn't say probably on top. I mean, this has been the great um, the great problem of post-communism, right, as opposed to post-Nazi Germany, right? I mean, there was this pretty rigorous denazification effort in the case of uh, World War II in, in Germany, but different countries have handled the what's called lustration. Um, the, Czech, the, the Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, I think, handled it more with more stringently than others um you know really really tried to to make people who had participated in state security and you know higher level party stuff bar them from any kind of public office whatsoever um so in some cases those these lists were made public when they 
probably shouldn't have been made public. And so, you know, that has some problematic aspects to it, but um, you know, it's a, it's a question of kind of public good versus preserving someone's, someone's past and different, as I said, different countries have handled it quite differently. Um, right. And I think in, in, uh, in Russia, there was not much of an effort um, to, to do any, any kind of less meaningful illustration. And I think you see the, the results. But how <laughs> I mean, so, 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 yeah, Poland? go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm interjecting, but how is it in Poland? Because I heard that they, they didn't actually make the, the list public as well. And um, so I'm just wondering, because the situation too, you have a lot of the ghosts of the uh, former, uh, the communist past that um, are lingering. And every now and then you hear about um, somebody upon their death, the the wife may submit all of his like letters and then all of them names are mentioned and, you know, people who were perhaps heroes of the past are now viewed as villains. So, yeah, I mean, this is so this is the the I, I don't know the details of the Polish version, but I mean, this is the the tricky part, right, is that on the one hand, I think it's clear you don't want people certainly who, had, who were involved in, in state security and, you know, surveillance and outright persecution. Those people should not be involved in public life. Um, but what about a kind of lower level party member? What about someone who had been an unofficial um, informant, right? Who maybe had passed along information, you know, one one time. So, so connect this to the film, right? In the film, there's this moment where Wiesler enters Dryman's apartment and this poor woman who lives across the hall has happened to be looking at her peephole and had seen the Stasi go into the apartment. When Wiesler leaves, right, he knocks on her door and says, not a word about this or young Misha, I forget the the girl's name, but you're basically your daughter won't get a chance to study at university. And so she's she doesn't do anything. Should those should those type of people be punished right after in the 1990s because they did that? Right. Probably not. But, the you know, it's not always clear where where that line should be should be drawn right i mean the the the, the regime and and it's and the system of of surveillance and uh informants had its tentacles in so many different places right probably most people at some point had given up something just to try to avoid trouble and so do you want to you want to punish right 80 percent of the population for for doing that like i you know i don't i don't know the answer Yeah. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about that scene in The Lives of Others where um, um, where um, Wiesler gets on the elevator and the little boy uh, yeah, yeah. makes a comment to him. Do you, do you want to tell us about that scene? I think that's really illustrative. Yeah, he gets on um, he gets on the, the elevator and there's this little boy who has a soccer ball. And uh, the little boy looks at Wiesler and he's probably seen wiesler types walking around or on tv and uh and he says uh the little boy says to wiesler are you stasi and wiesler says what do you know about the stasi and the little boy says something like well my dad tells me they're they're the bad mean people mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and so you see wiesler look on wiesler's face is like okay yeah your dad's gonna get get what's coming to him 
but he also has this little moment of crisis. And so he says, what's your, and you think he's going to say, what's your dad's name? Mm-hmm. And he says, what's the name of your ball? Mm-hmm. And the kid's yeah. like, you know, balls don't have names. Well, why are you, well, you stop talking to me, you crazy old man, <laughs> you know, and he gets, <laughs> gets off the, so it's a kind of comic moment. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of the, everyone knows that the Stasi are people who you try to stay away from, right? Yeah, it's a terrifying moment as a parent actually watching that scene because you know that your secrets are your children are going to tell your secrets to the world. Um, so good thing we don't live in a you know we don't have yeah, a Stasi, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, what do you think? You know, I want to move on maybe to some other things, but what do you think? Just kind of in in summary about um, about the lives of others about that character of Wiesler. You know, I know there was some there was there have been there have been different things written about him like is he is he is he the hero of the movie is he you know i mean he's he's ultimately a pretty sad figure at the end i mean he he is in a sense successful kind of like in you know he 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 decides what he wants to do and he does it but you know he definitely doesn't reap any real reward from it so i don't know what's your big takeaway from that character yeah, I mean, I think I think in a way he's um, you know he ends up being a kind of hero because he does he does save Dryman. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. if not for and and this is the other funny thing about you mentioned Andrew earlier about Donner's marks playing with the idea of um, an audience and the different levels of audience and and he also plays with the idea of who's who's writing history, right? Because Wiesler rewrites the play the fake plays that he wants to be put into the stasi reports mm-hmm. uh, saying nice things about lenin and the and the revolution so wiesler turns himself into a into a kind of uh in, into a kind of writer insofar as these stasi files right are are a kind of art in a weird way yeah so he does save he does save dryman but you're but you're right he you see him at the end of the film he has a the the guy who I who I got to write a an interesting essay for uh for my book on the lives of others his name is Paul Cantor actually a very famous kind of popular culture uh, critic he points out that Wiesler isn't even a postman he's like mm-hmm. he's actually delivering like um you know Bed Bath and Beyond coupons or you know so something <laughs> something <laughs> like this so it's it's like a it's a rank lower than even even postman and he's a definitely a sad sad person um but in the end right i mean i i think the the end of the movie is so so beautiful right he mm-hmm. he realizes that this novel that has been written um it's 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 about him and it's a gift to him and that's all that's all the reward that he needs right he doesn't doesn't need anything else yeah i think there's a kind of i mean just watching it from a christian perspective i know that that's not exactly what, you know, it's not like a Christian movie, but I mean, I, I almost get the sense that Wiesler is like doing penance. Like he, he, you know, he, I, you know, presumably he could, could go somewhere and do something else. I mean, he lives now in a free society and he seems like a well-educated man. I mean, maybe not, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he just absolutely couldn't do anything else, but I mean, he's doing this extremely humble work and he's living simply on the satisfaction of the role that he played completely behind the scenes as it were unseen i mean he's the watcher who saw it all and nobody ever saw him including right. including right all the way to the very end i mean he's he's a nobody he's just you know he's a nobody right so i don't know yeah uh, i think that's quite nice yeah yeah i like that yeah 
Bobby, do you want to uh, you want to take us well, in a new direction? I, I, well, uh, yeah, I was just going to ask a little bit. We we mentioned Cheslov Milos already, but I I know Flag, you've written about Vakhtelov um, uh, Havel um, and some of the other um, Czech um, leaders of uh, of the 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 movement against communism in Czechoslovakia. Uh, so I mean. What 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 like what drew you to study many of these guys and like if you if you had to like talk about the differences too with the various movements like Solidar Notion Poland and then what was going on in 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 Czechoslovakia uh, what would be those like the similarities and differences and were they were they working together um, or did they did they kind of work independently from each other? Um, so the. I know that the Czechs and the the Czechs, Slovaks, and Poles work work pretty closely together. They would um, they would meet occasionally in the I think I think it's the Tatra Mountains that are between like northern what is now northern Czech Republic and and Poland. I think that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, northern Czech Republic. Yeah, Poland, like Zako, would they meet in like Zakopane or? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, okay. And then, but occasionally they would, yeah, they would go into the mountains to try to uh, meet undetected by the uh, state security of either um, of, of either regime. And, you know, they would exchange ideas. Um, I know the plan after Havel wrote his, um, his famous essay, Power of the Powerless, it was translated into Polish and they, they were thinking of, of, um, I think trying to publish a kind of joint publication that would involve dissidents from both both countries, and I think it 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 never happened. Um, I, I can't remember it was because one of those meetings was disrupted uh, by the state security of one of the regimes. I think this was in, in I want to say like 80, 1980 or eighty eighty one, um, and so I think there there were some definite there were definitely some similarities in terms of the ideas that they thought might be effective in resisting the regime. And so I know that the Czechs admired very much the, the flying university or the underground university system in Poland, which, which was much more, I think, thanks mostly to the Catholic church, which was much more extensive and sophisticated in Poland than it, than it ever uh, developed into in, in the, in the Czech Republic. Um, and so Benda, Václav Benda is, is this Catholic dissident who is a close ally of Havel. He had this very famous essay uh, in 78 called The Parallel Polis. And, you know, his idea was basically to give up on trying to reform the institutions of the official institutions of these countries from within and develop parallel parallel institutions in terms of, a, you know, an underground music, an underground theater, an underground education system uh and and have people who might not be ready to um you know kind of register that they they might not be ready to sign on for any official act of dissent in terms of you know protesting a particular injustice but they might be willing to kind of join a reading group for the sake of their own psychic health or they might be willing to send their kid to an important seminar where they read real literature instead of you know marxist leninist claptrap and so his idea was you kind of induce people to participating in this parallel 
society and they don't the the point is not to get them to become quote unquote dissidents but rather to kind of reinvigorate their um social and political selves in a way that it would be attractive to them now the trick is right that would involve some risk like you couldn't you couldn't avoid the fact that this stuff would have been in whatever form you tried to induce them to participate right there would they would be taking taking a risk but i think his basic idea was you have to offer people concrete goods you can't just ask them to sign on to some protest that may or may not have any concrete effect yeah and now i know i i believe all three of us are admirers of of roger scruton and and he something that fascinates me is he you know he went to uh prague i believe and uh and elsewhere in czechoslovakia and poland i believe and was involved in in supporting this like kind of what you're talking about this kind of underground intellectual movement mm -hmm. and um yeah, I, I, I guess I have a, a, another question, but maybe, maybe we'll pause there if you have any thoughts about Scruton. I mean, I just uh, I just want the world to know about him and what and what he is, what he what he offered. Yeah. So in 1979, uh, a young uh, Czech guy. Um, now I'm blanking on his name, of course, but it'll probably come to me in a few minutes. He, he wrote a letter to I think it was Oxford, Cambridge and Harvard and just said, you know, we we in Prague long for real education. Could you send us some some people to uh, run some seminars and you know help us educate ourselves and avoid the you know the official Charles University system? And most people either didn't reply or said you know we're in no position to do anything. Um, but Scruton got hold of the letter and was like, yeah, I'll figure something out. And he he organized this foundation called the Jan Hus foundation and it was basically a, a foundation that was devoted to sending western academics from a variety of disciplines right into these underground seminars um scruton himself went to, to to many and and participated in 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 seminars on philosophy and architecture and and different things and these these uh these seminars took place there was both a version of it in prague but there was a more developed one in in um in moravia and brno um and uh, yeah, it went on for uh, a, Scruton himself got kicked out, I think, in 1985. He was um, uh, arrested on a uh, it wasn't exactly arrested. He was he was um, taken from a park bench in in Brno and escorted to the Austrian border, basically, and said, you know, yeah. you're not you're not welcome ever again. Uh, but this foundation continued supporting these seminars through 1989. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the second part of what I wanted to say, building on that, and then Bob, you may want to jump in too. Um, you know, some of us, uh, there's been a lot of talk about kind of the soft totalitarianism that we now experience in the West. And um, there's part of me that wonders if, you know, and actually part of our project at the Space Salvi Institute, Bobby's based in Poland, and we we intend to to do some seminars and, and study store tour type things in Poland and, and maybe in other places. Um, you know, part part of what I wonder now is what what do we need to do in the West to create this parallel polis? I don't know if that's something that you that you've thought about or take kind of inspiration from in the in the 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 Cold War uh figures that you work on. But uh what what are your thoughts about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think it's already happening to some extent. I mean, it's a lot. Uh, you could say the the kind of Christian homeschooling movement, right? The classical mm-hmm. education movement is a version of this parallel polis, right? People being dissatisfied with the public education in their in their locality. So, I mean, in a way, it's much easier, right? We don't have to worry about um, a. Uh, I mean, I guess it varies from from state to state depending on on different rule, rules of having to do with establishing charter schools and homeschooling and all of that. But I would say all of that bureaucracy pales in comparison to what people risked in, sure. you know, 1970s Poland or, or Czechoslovakia. So, um, you know, I would say that the parallel Polis project is, is attractive. And the good news is that it's a lot easier compared to what the, the people in the East had to, <laughs> had to try to navigate. So Bob, you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I mean, but in the East, I mean, I've, I've been only living in Krakow, a little bit outside of Krakow now since since May. But in that short time period in my numerous travels to Poland in the past 10 years, um, it's it's interesting how now with a lot of the uh, with the with the capitalism now and this new new regime, uh, you had the church as an authority and and the kind of having you had the parallel polis uh with with that totalitarian system but now especially amongst the younger generation we had Michał Wuczewski on a couple of weeks ago who's a, a Polish uh, sociologist um we were seeing how um, in a way Poland might be going the way possibly of even something like in Ireland, even though you, you have many people who are going to the churches still. Um, and like I, I talked about with All Souls and All Saints Day in the, semin- in the cemeteries, but uh, there is a, there is a kind of a secularization that is, is really kind of overtaking the society. I see that especially amongst the younger, the younger generations. And perhaps, perhaps that is just a consequence of a certain, um, you know, I mean, you have the, the uh, some some things with the sexual abuse crisis are coming to light right now, and you have some other controversies that um, surround the church here. But um, perhaps that parallel polis, uh, you know, once you no longer really needed that, it, it's there's a there's a lessening of the practice. So my mm-hmm. hope is that, generally speaking, that uh, with this new system, that just you know, perhaps the way of life doesn't really become uh, completely distant from the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. That reminded me of the so Havel, um, Václav Havel has this, uh, he, he explores th- these themes in his letters to Olga, which were these letters that he wrote uh, officially to his wife from prison, but they were, they were actually written to his brother and his, and his friends. He He used, he used his wife to kind of talk to, uh, a broader group, much broader group of people. And he says in, in a few of these letters that um, the totalitarian East, the danger is uh, obviously a kind of totalizing ideology where people have this aspiration for meaning and they, and they try to freeze meaning in place and, and adapt themselves to an ideology that furnishes right answers to every human question but then he says the uh his worry is in the west there'll be a kind of depoliticization uh 
where people don't even aspire to any meaning whatsoever. And they're, they're satisfied by what he calls existence in the world, by which he means a kind of naked consumerism, no, no aspiration towards transcendence or meaning of, of any kind. And he, you know, he says both of these solutions to the problem of, of human life are, are bad. (laughs) And, uh, and I think he worries that even if, even if totalitarianism is defeated, this, this kind of depoliticized, I'm not even going to bother with aspiration for meeting that could, that could take over. Is it kind of like the Murdy Bing pill? That um, yeah, <laughs> mentions with uh, Stanislav Vitkevich's uh, book uh, Insatiability. Um, yeah, it's a it's very insight. That's the first part of uh, the captive mind. So if anybody's interested in kind of uh, how we numb ourselves to those transcendent questions, they should check that out. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned you mentioned flag the the political and. One of the things that I am somewhat, uh, just slightly concerned about is that for for there are there do seem to be groups that are pursuing this parallel polis um, in the West, and you pointed to some of the things like homeschooling and um, and that kind of thing. I don't, I I, I for one don't want us to completely. I, I think that okay to talk about pills then, right? People take people. Some people take the red pill and they become sort of radicalized on the right or something. But then <laughs> some people that's not they they get they get worn out with that too because they see well the right wing guys are just as bad as anybody. So then they then they take the black pill, which is just the you know they go full Nietzschean, you know just what you know it just it's all just all just power and you know we're just gonna kind of seclude ourselves and. Uh, and you know the world can just go to hell, and uh, that's um, that's not really our cup of tea in our in our little venture here. I don't know for you as a political scientist, are you uh, are you concerned about that sort of thing? I'm yeah, I'm anti pill of any kind. Okay, <laughs> all right, let's forget about the pills. <laughs> I I mean I I uh, I mean I think the the parallel polis is useful uh, and important to the extent that it's genuinely needed, um, but I also think. Um, you know, conservatives especially, uh, there's a real danger. They they should not, you know, give up on on official institutions. I mean, I I think again, we are. Uh, I have my problems with certain institutions and and uh, in American life and and um, you know certain opinions about public policies in a variety of of ways. But I don't think we're anywhere near. Um you know, what one would have would have had to to face again in the context of 1970s communist regime. And so I think there is a I think you're you're alluding to a kind of um, uh, a, the temptation to, as to a kind of escapism that you, you would turn away from from both the state and, and in a weird way society mm-hmm. because you want to excuse your own kind of nihilistic bad behavior mm-hmm. um when you know the response the responsible person would not just give up and run away with their tail between their legs but they would you know put themselves out there in in different political and and social worlds and 
try to affect change and and work with people who you might disagree with, right? I mean, I I think we've got um, again, there there are lots of ways that the country is 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 screwed up, and we've got to face some difficult problems. But um, you know, we've we've got some institutions that are that are worth saving. So yeah, I I, I too worry about a, a kind of um, irresponsible escapism, and maybe also a, a, a temptation to kind of uh, I don't know, purify yourself and keep apart from the bad people, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, I mean, uh, I'll throw it back to you, Bobby, but just, yeah, that the, what you're saying flag is exactly what Bobby and I've talked about many times as we've started this little venture. I mean, we, we chose the name uh, space Salvi based on Pope Benedict the 16th great encyclical uh, because we, we are people of hope. We're Christians. And so, I mean, we're not, we're not giving up on the world. That's um, that's just, kind of an impossibility. So uh, it's encouraging and, and in a strange way, encouraging to contrast what we are facing with the, you know, kind of the, this prospect of like soft totalitarianism with the, the hard variety, right. That, that, that these people that we're, we're focusing on in this film, um, uh, the lives of others. And then in, in these real life situations that, that you study as a scholar. So it is kind of helpful to, to put these things in perspective. Um, Bobby, any last uh, questions for flag before we wrap up for today? Well, I mean, it's just um, not so much so much question, but maybe a comment. Uh, I remember when uh, when so, some a book called The Benedict Option came out, and a lot of people were aspiring to kind of go retreat, retreat possibly on a on a whether or not that was the author's intention uh, in the book. But um, I remember a professor telling me, "Just go read Nathaniel Hawthorne's short stories about uh, some of these." utopian projects and you know usually people you know we're all we're all still marked by sin and so usually sometimes those little those communities perhaps can become another almost a little totalitarian themselves as you said kind of this aspiration towards a certain purity um and so um those those projects it's it's kind of it's a the intentions it may be right but yet you can't help but live within the world. So finding uh, finding certain ways of still cultivating something like what Pope Benedict calls creative minorities and these little communities are, is, is essential. Um, and so I see that it, it, despite the consumerism here in Poland right now, there's a lot of attempts to try to explore um, ways of of. Of, of moving forward precisely in what like kind of what Pope Benedict saw as the future of of the West. Yeah, that's very good. I guess I would just add to the the this temptation towards kind of purity and isolation and um, you know keeping yourself apart from you know the bad stuff and the bad people. I would say the the dissidents right are instructive here too uh especially in the in the case of of at least former czechoslovakia right i mean these are people who could not really afford in many cases to keep themselves isolated right they they had to look for allies and and kind of fraternity from whoever they could right and so they never i guess never ceased searching and being open to to kind of unexpected allies in a way i mean partially out of necessity because they had to they could they had to take any any ally that they could and but that kind of insistence on on openness and um 
you know, a, a, I guess a, I would say a genuine kind of Christian charity. Um, you know, that's the, I would say that's the better model, not, not, not necessarily a, a kind of, um, Benedict option. I don't, yeah, I don't uh, like you. I don't, I don't know. I mean, Rod, Rod Dreyer has said he does, he didn't sort of mean it in the, in the way that lots of people took it, but without getting into, you know, that debate. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we tend to use the the Benedict option as just a kind of placeholder for, for the, the idea of some kind of right utopianism that, uh, that probably isn't, isn't such a great idea, but you know, but Rod's actual work may be, Maybe maybe helpful in in some ways right. and and not yeah, yeah, so yeah. helpful in other ways. Maybe you know. Well, on that note, Flag Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and for being a part of of this podcast. Um, where can we uh, point people to uh, your work? Uh, so I have a I have a website uh, that that is a good kind of catalog of some of the more popular writing I do, like book book reviews and movie reviews and podcast appearances like this. Uh, so it's it's Frank Flag Taylor, the fourth, and just IV the the Roman numeral dot com, and um, that'll give you a a good a good um, introduction to the range of of some of my writings, and also has if people are interested in kind of what I teach, has syllabi and different courses I, I taught. So you can, you can find all sorts of uh, hopefully interesting things on there. <laughs> no doubt. Well, Flag, thanks again for joining us. And to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you for sharing this experience with us. If you like what you heard, please do give us a five-star review, share this podcast with a friend, be sure to subscribe so you can get our regular episodes and go to our website, spacealveinstitute.com. Dot com, right, Bobby? Dot com basealveinstitute.com to sign up for our emails so you don't miss any of our articles, podcasts, or news. Until next time, God bless and live in hope.